Welcome to this Colorado Legal Education Audiocast. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. I'm Danae Woody at Woody Law Firm. I'm a family law practitioner here in Denver, Colorado. I'm also an executive council member of the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division, as well as an executive council member of the Family Law Section of the Bar Association. And I'm Alexandra Smith. I'm also a family law attorney here in Denver. I practice with the law firm Harrington Brewster and Klein. And today we are going to talk about collaborative law, specifically collaborative family law. And I think for those of you who aren't familiar with this topic or this area of practice within the family law arena, um, it's helpful to know that there are a couple of Uh, state and regional organizations that support this area of practice. The first organization that would be a great point of reference or more information is Colorado Collaborative Divorce Professionals, or CCDP. So if you take a look um, at their website, it will give you a a very good in-depth overview of collaborative law in the family law arena. And there are also other practice groups in the Denver metro area, as well as um, across the Front Range, and even as far as the Aspen Grand Junction area, where attorneys have grouped um, in this area of practice to support one another. So if you're interested, go to the CCDP website, and you can definitely gain more information. There are also trainings offered annually for those of you who are interested in truly diving into the arena of collaborative law. So I also want to make mention of the fact that Allie and I are both practice group members of the Denver Source for Collaborative Divorce. So there are lots of practice groups, and if there's a practice group that you're interested in, you can definitely get in touch with those people and try to join theirs or start your own. That's what Allie and I and several colleagues have done in the last year, and it's been a great venture, especially as we all continue to build our collaborative practices. So, Allie, when you hear collaborative divorce, what does that mean to you? Well, I, it means to me a very different method of practice than the traditional litigated divorce that uh, I think many people think of when they think of divorce in Colorado or around the uh, around the country. When I think of collaborative divorce, I first of all think about two attorneys who have committed to practicing in a collaborative manner, and there are some very specific guidelines that um, that govern the collaborative practice, but generally speaking, it's it requires, first of all, two lawyers who are trained in the practice of collaborative law and are committing to both one another and to their clients that they are going to keep the divorce out of court and, frankly, contract not to represent either party in court. Um, And then I also think about really a more holistic approach to divorce. So not only do we have two collaborative attorneys um, in in the collaborative model, but we also bring in a neutral either coach or facilitator, someone who may be a mental health professional, a parenting expert, but a neutral who can really guide the parties through the process on the emotional side. Because as we all know, divorce is, uh, I like to say, maybe 10% legal and 90% emotional. So having that neutral person helping parties uh, through the emotional process is really valuable. And then we also bring in a neutral financial advisor or expert who can help the the parties with their... um, their finances in a collaborative fashion. So it's a, just a more efficient way. So I, I know, Danae, you practice collaborative divorce, and you obviously also practice 
um, traditional litigated divorce and unbundled representation. So tell me in terms of the difference that you've seen in the practice between the traditional litigated divorce or unbundled services versus collaborative. So there are several differences. Um, first, it's important to know what cases lend themselves well to the collaborative model and which fit much better into the traditional adversarial litigation model. So collaborative cases are, they don't apply to every party and not every party can be sort of shoehorned through that model. Specifically, parties who have extreme high conflict in their marriage and in their impending divorce are not going to likely do very well in under a collaborative model. And one of those reasons is because at the outset, they have to agree to openly share information. They have to openly disclose all material facts related to their finances. And that's similar to a litigation model, except that in litigation, generally attorneys are strategizing and attempting to position themselves and attempting to structure facts um, while still maintaining the um, the veracity of the facts. Their attorneys are attempting to advocate for their clients and obtain the best possible outcome for their clients under a litigation model. And in a collaborative model, while attorneys are still advocating for their clients, the clients have already agreed in the beginning to a process that might end up resulting in more concessions for that person than they might otherwise experience in a litigation model. Do you think in context of um, families or couples who've had domestic violence, whether physical or, or verbal, is the collaborative model appropriate? It can be, but generally the answer to that I think is no in my practice. What are your thoughts? I, I agree. I think the biggest red flag for me in the when I hear a couple that's had either, you know, very obvious domestic violence or more kind of um, subtle power and control dynamics within the marriage, I worry that it is not going to be an appropriate model because I think sometimes the, the perpetrator or the abuser can consider this collaborative model as a way to kind of facilitate control. Like, we're not going to go to court, so they're going to, you know, do what I say just as they have always done. So I do think that's a big red flag to think about. Um, not, you know, as you said, I think it can certainly be done, but um, I think that issue has to be really uh, clearly addressed as, as a potential pitfall. I agree, and it needs to be vetted by the attorneys involved. The attorneys really need to pay attention before agreeing to take on a case like this, they need to pay attention to the personalities on both sides, not only for the parties, but also of one another. Uh, there are several collaborative divorce professionals and attorneys out there in the Denver metro area, um, and this is a small community. So if you don't know, and if you're, if you're in a position to potentially take a collaborative case and you're not sure if the attorney on the other side is a collaborative attorney, per se, um, ask around. Contact CCDP or contact one of us. We're happy to talk with you about that. So, Allie, would you talk a little bit more? We talked a little bit about the things to look out for, but what about the things that really make this a positive avenue for clients? Well, I, I think, first of all, the long-term benefit, I mean, there's been some studies on the 
um, post-decree issues, so after divorce litigation that arises in a traditional litigated divorce versus a collaborative divorce, uh, research has shown that the post-decree likelihood in, for families who have been through the collaborative model is virtually zero, which means issues are resolved in the collaborative model. People aren't going to come back in two years angry about some parenting issue or angry that finances weren't resolved in a, you know, a way that they felt was fair at the time, so they're coming back to modify child support or maintenance. Or um, I think that is one really huge benefit. It, it reduces the post-degree issues. So, Allie, in your litigation practice, you have a litigation practice, right? Correct. Yep. In your litigation practice, about what percentage of your cases are post-decree? I would say 50%, a lot. So that's a huge number that collaborative law is potentially eliminating. It is, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I, I mean, I guess from a business perspective, <laughs> maybe not helpful, but, uh, you know, really if we're thinking about the families that we're serving, it is a phenomenal result because it's allowing people to move forward um, with their lives and not worry about coming back. And I, in the collaborative model, one of the first items of business, if you will, is we will sit down with both, both of the lawyers and the parties and our typically facilitator and go through the goals of the process and what each party's interests are through the divorce process and then post-divorce. So we will talk about, you know, touchy-feely things like, I want to feel safe. I want to make sure I have a nice home after I divorce. I want to make sure that I can see my children when I want to see them, even if it's not in the written parenting plan. Really talking about people's fears that I think are common in every divorce and putting them out there, which, you know, in a traditional litigated divorce, um, really doesn't happen. So I think there, you know, the value... Uh, to our clients is tremendous. It's a way to look at the family as a whole. I think, in my opinion, if a couple has children and they're going to be, you know, maybe divorced, but co-parenting and having a relationship for years and years to come, approaching the divorce in a collaborative manner is going to be the best thing for their children long term. Because as we know that conflict around divorce is so damaging to kiddos, they can survive divorce, but what they can't survive is parents who don't like each other. So um, that is obviously a huge advantage. I, you know, I know, Danae, we've all talked about in our practice groups that it's not perfect for everyone, and I'd love to get your thoughts on what some of the disadvantages of the collaborative model as you, um, you know, as you think about it or assess whether it's appropriate might be. So some, we touched a little bit on some of the disadvantages. Um, that it not being for everyone, it certainly uh, can get a little bit more complicated if there has been domestic violence and, and a lot of conflicting cases. Um, it, there's also the possibility that collaborative cases can take a little bit longer than a traditional divorce. Now, it's sometimes it, when attorneys have to look at this, you need to look at it as six to one, half dozen to the other. We have incredibly crowded judicial dockets. And so when analyzing, depending on the county in Colorado where you're practicing, you may be looking at six months to a year before obtaining a permanent orders divorce hearing date anyway. Uh, but there are certain other counties where you could, you could get a hearing much more quickly. And if you went the traditional litigation model, the court will impose deadlines and try to force parties to adhere to those via sanctions. 
And in a collaborative model, the parties agree not to threaten litigation, and they agree not to go after each other for sanctions. And um, generally, if someone says, you know what, I know we had an internal deadline that we all agreed upon, but I really I have this vacation scheduled to Europe for 21 days, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to it. We all need to work around that together in this model. And, and sometimes that can get frustrating. I mean, collaborative divorce is still divorce. Divorce is still not a fun process for nearly anyone. I've yet to meet a client who has told me, hey, I'm having a great time doing this. Right. I think, um, you know, the other question often that I get when people are pondering collaborative divorce is, oh, is this going to be so expensive? This sounds expensive. We've got two lawyers and a mental health person or a coach and a financial advisor. And, you know, is how much is this going to cost me? And one thing I tell all clients is your divorce is going to cost as much as you let it cost. Um, but I think in the collaborative model, at the outset, yes, there may be some higher initial retainers or professional fees, but at the end of the day, it will be significantly less than a drawn-out litigated divorce. So I think there's that piece. And then... So I, I want to agree. I agree with Allie, and I want to expand on that a little bit. So Sometimes when we think about a traditional litigation case, I think of the costs in that case as an inverse pyramid. And they start out with the parties paying their lawyers, and they pay a petition filing fee and a response fee. And then they start to build a little bit more in attorney's fees as the, as the attorneys prepare financial disclosures. And then they pay a little bit more for the mediator. And then they pay a little bit more for continued settlement negotiations. And then they pay more if they still haven't settled. And then they need to start preparing for trial. And then the costs get even heavier when we start talking about subpoenaing witnesses and scheduling depositions and authenticating exhibits and finally preparing for and going to a trial. Those are costs that clients sometimes don't see. They don't foresee the end of the top of the inverse pyramid. Whereas in a collaborative model, we flip that pyramid over, and the costs start out much higher in the beginning than they would in a typical litigation case, purely if you're only looking at the very bottom of sort of the diagram, if we're envisioning these two pyramids next to each other. However, in, in my experience, the, the pyramid in a collaborative model, we get to the top a lot more quickly. And at the end of the day, when comparing the same case against the other, parties are going to save money through the collaborative model if they're truly committed to that model as opposed to going through litigation. And, and I think just to follow up on kind of that model, and I love that, I actually have never heard that. So thank you for sharing. Sure. I, um, I think adding in the potential of limiting post-decree issues or post-divorce issues can certainly be added to that pyramid because in really contested divorces, the likelihood of people coming back after the decree to relitigate certain issues obviously increases the cost, where in the collaborative model it is very, very unlikely or, or certainly rare that it's going to um, it's going to happen. Absolutely. And I don't know about your experience, Allie, but in mine, some of my post-decree litigation matters end up costing more than several of my divorces for the clients. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I touched a little bit at the start on the model of collaborative law and that, you know, the count, both parties and attorneys are committing through an agreement not to litigate. So, what, though, happens if they can't agree? So if there is some impasse, what happens to the collaborative model? So a couple different things could potentially happen. So some attorneys in the Denver metro area actually work sort of a fail-safe into their 
collaboration, collaborative divorce agreements that indicate that if this model falls apart, then they will, they have agreed at the outset that they will submit their dispute to arbitration rather than to litigation. So that's one potential avenue. And in that avenue, the parties can retain their own attorneys. The other avenue is where if, if there is no arbitration provision and the parties just cannot continue in this model, and generally the attorneys will know, um, they'll start to see the writing on the wall and they'll probably try to involve a facilitator and really make sure that this thing can't proceed under the collaborative model. And if it can't, then it, it, then it may, and this is rare, but it may end up going down the traditional litigation path the problem with that is that the costs will probably somewhere near double because the attorneys must withdraw and the parties have to start over fresh. Right. So I think that's something people really, you know, need to be aware of at the outset what they are signing up for and if they are really willing to commit to this process and if it's the very you know, traditional collaborative model where the lawyers agree and the parties agree that they're not going to litigate and if the case goes to litigation the lawyers then pull back and different counsel come in. Um, I think it's it's something that needs to be very well explained to clients what they're giving up. And as you mentioned, that arbitration process is, is uh, you know, there's some dispute about whether that's a truly collaborative model if you have the potential of arbitration down the line. But it is certainly a way to um, make sure all issues will re be resolved and people can keep their lawyers. And I think it's also helpful to think about, you know, limiting the scope of arbitration if you're, uh, if people can't agree on, you know, one limited issue, but generally are in agreement, they can still have, you know, the collaborative model work for everything but that one issue and then take that issue to arbitration. So, Allie, you were joking a few minutes ago about when we eliminate post-decree cases from our business model, that that might, that might be rough on business. But um, considering the the 50% divorce rate around, I don't, that's not a major concern of mine, um, especially given that collaborative law is so, can be so helpful for families and for children. So what are some of the benefits to your practice for why, why do you include collaborative divorce in your practice model? Well, I, you know, I look at it as really another tool in my toolbox and I, you know, I, definitely know that not every case is appropriate for collaborative law, but there are certainly many clients who walk in and I think you and, and your potential um, or future ex-spouse are perfect candidates. And I think allowing that, um, allowing that tool, and I share that with people, it's, it's a really helpful way for me to expand my practice and just, you know, serve clients in another way. I think on a very personal, professional level, it's a very gratifying way to practice. I, you know, we all know that practicing divorce law can be hard and ugly and exhausting. So, um, my favorite cases and most gratifying cases are those I've done collaboratively, and I, um, I really value the professional relationships I've developed with other collaborative lawyers because, you know, I think we, we find, and this carries over into my litigation cases, when I've worked with a lawyer in a collaborative case, we have developed such trust and I think respect for one another that then when the case comes to, you know, if a litigation case comes with that same lawyer, um, it's a much more, I mean, it might be a hostile process between the parties, but certainly not between myself and the, the other attorney. So personally, it's a really great way to practice family law. Awesome. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Thank you all for listening. My name is Danae Woody from Woody Law Firm. I'm a family law attorney here in Denver, Colorado. 
And again, I'm Allie Smith, a family law attorney with Harrington Brewster and Klein. And if you would like any more information about collaborative law, as I mentioned, check out the Colorado Collaborative Divorce Professionals website. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more information on this topic and many others, visit cle.cobar.org. CLE.